Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From aurora to meteorite showers, there's a lot of interesting weather in space we see from Earth. Now, all these things are happening in our upper atmosphere, and sometimes they can be beautiful. And those beautiful aurora or meteorite showers can have some pretty nasty origins, whether it be comets melting away in the sun, or asteroids getting smashed to bits, or violet particles bombarding our atmosphere. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Our ionosphere, or that of, say, Jupiter, is bombarded by particles from our sun. It unleashes a tremendous and sometimes beautiful sight. Now, the aurora that we see in our atmosphere in the northern and southern poles of the planet is certainly stunning. And this stellar dance of particles from the solar wind and sometimes even other external extrasolar sources makes a beautiful light show in the sky. But this can be pretty dangerous for things, well, in orbit. And when there's a large solar flare or a period of stellar weather, this can lead to all kinds of chaos for a communication satellite or maybe something else in orbit. And that's only considering things from the sun. There's also a bunch of extrasolar sources that can wreak havoc on things in orbit around Earth. Now, our magnetic field is pretty amazing at shepherding these particles to places in certain regions. And actually, not just Earth's magnetic field, but in the other magnetic fields of the planets in our solar system. Jupiter's magnetic field is so large and big, you can actually listen to it, which is kind of cool to listen to the noise of a large planet. But when it comes a bit more down to Earth, or just above it, understanding how the weather occurs in space is really important. Because a lot of these beautiful sites come with a lot of really high-energy electrons. And these high-energy particles are a big danger for satellites and any crewed missions in orbit. So understanding their activity, mapping those weather patterns, and using it to forecast, or at least report on accurately, the weather in space is a pretty difficult problem. And that's what researchers like Dr. Nigel Meredith are trying to investigate. Researchers are part of the British Antarctic Survey. And Dr. Nigel Meredith, Thomas Clayton, and Michael Caton, along with Richard Horn, published in the journal Space Weather, a way of measuring the impact and quantifying just how bad and dangerous space weather can be, and using it to provide like a benchmark. We do this all the time with rain events, cyclones, floods, you name it. We say that they are a types of statistical measurement, like one in 10 year or one in 100 year events. And when we do this, we look at a large amount of data, and basically count how many times, statistically, not just number-wise, we see an event of that magnitude occurring. And this is an easy way to get a good feel for, is this significant? Is this unusual? Is this the baseline we should be designing around? Or is something more at play here? And now that we're getting more and more measurements of the stellar weather, we can do this in more detail. And that's important because satellite operators, manufacturers, insurers, governments, they need to be ready for the fact that these devices in orbit will face more and more problems depending on the stellar weather. Now, as we're reliant more in an ever-increasing way on the satellites for everything from communication to navigation, personally, commercially, and also for all kinds of civil and defense applications, 
Trying to keep Earth safe and running smoothly basically requires satellite comms. And at the moment, there are around 5,465 operational satellites in orbit around the Earth, at least ones that we have tracked and understand what they do. There'll probably be a lot more out there that are either too small, research projects, or too secret to be fully understood. But all of these satellites will be bombarded with electrons for at least some of their orbit. Now, in general, you can estimate the value of this space economy as being around somewhere $386 billion. That's a pretty huge amount of revenue. That revenue might come from communications. It might come from tracking wildfires using satellites in a particularly nasty bushfire season or analysing the weather. There are many uses for them. So they have a clear value, there's a lot of them, but we don't really have a good way to monitor space weather. So that's what Meredith and the team were trying to understand. How bad are the storm events that we see? And when these killer magnetic storms come, or the one in a hundred year event, what does that actually mean? Because once you have that data, you can start to build risk models around it. When researchers and engineers have these statistical measures, 1 in 10, 1 in 50, 1 in 100, it might seem like an abstract thing. But actually, from a design criteria perspective, it's incredibly important. For example, if you're designing a dam wall, a levee, or maybe a, a pipe in your sewage network, rainfall, you'll design it around a 1 in 50, or maybe a 1 in 100 year rainfall event. It means that most of that time, that system will be fine. But every so often, it will be perhaps under pressure. Now, what this prevents you from doing is actually oversizing. You don't normally just design a giant brick that will be able to withstand any radiation because, well, that in this satellite's case would be too heavy to launch. So it's about trade-offs. And these measures of 1 in 10, 1 in 100, they're actually really important for actually designing to the best optimal payload to weight to value ratio. And these kind of measures, they're basing on the energy of the electrons and their distance from Earth. Now, you can see these differences play out at the largest and the highest energies furthest away from the planet. You can see a main major swing of values between a factor of 3 and 10 for some of the highest electron energies, especially when you get out over 35,000 kilometers from Earth's surface. That's a pretty extreme high orbit level, but actually one where you can get a lot of high energy radiation. So if you were designing a satellite to operate this in this region, you would see a lot of variability in the amount of energy you'd be exposed to, and you have to design accordingly. Now, like weather on Earth, there is roughly, we think, a 11-year solar cycle. And the majority of these killer electron events occur during the solar cycle's declining phase. When there's solar activity on the surface of the sun, that's what we're talking about, stellar activity, whether there's more or less flares or bubbling or events or tumultuous turbulence on the surface of the sun and the corona around it, when this cycle is on its downslope, we actually see the, the worst of these killer electron events. And this normally happens basically roughly twice during a 20-year period. At least that's what they saw in the data that they studied. The largest event, the peak event or extremist event, that was occurring all over the place. It didn't really bear any resemblance to the cycle, which means that if you think about it another way, you can have a long period of drought, of no rainfall, but your hottest day of the year may come from an entirely different point. It might be in a wet season, for example. So the space weather is something that needs to be tracked. 
and coming up with good heuristic measures and statistical methods of analyzing them based on the electron levels is a pretty important and tricky thing. But it's not the only type of space weather out there, because sometimes these aurora and other things that we see in our sky can be really beautiful. In this case, also dangerous, but other cases it can be not just ionic particles bouncing off our ionosphere, but actually physical objects as well. Now I'm going to turn to another paper, which is about some other types of space weather, meteorite showers, like the Geminids. There are plenty of amazing meteorite showers that occur and when you think about how all these shooting stars and these stream of meteorites that you can see how they occur and form is something that is so incredible about them especially the periodic ones that have been so fascinating to scientists because they're relatively regular you can predict them you can understand when they're going to occur and how and you can thus have an amazing amazing show that you can go watch now, where these meteorite showers come from are interesting to scientists because some of them are mostly from comets. Now, comets will emit a tail of ice and dust. Now, this is great because then these will periodically come and fall down on Earth as the comet orbits the sun. And depending on which comet in orbit, and you can then that's predictable orbit, that is, you can also make a prediction about when these meteor showers might occur. And comets are also pretty nice because they're mostly ice and dust, so there's no real risk of damage as well. You just get a pretty show. But that's not the only type of meteor shower that we have. There are others out there, and one of them is the Geminids. And what's interesting about the Geminids is that they come from an asteroid, a chunk of rock. Now, when an asteroid typically orbits the sun because it's mostly rock, you don't end up with a tail. You don't end up with a tail, you don't end up with a whole showering amount of particles or shoot meteorites that will fall down on Earth and create the lovely shower that we see. Now, asteroids are amazing and, and interesting, not normally a source of a meteorite shower. So what exactly is going on in the case of the Geminids? And that's what researchers been investigating and published in the journal Planetary Science. Lead author in this paper were Kukia and Cezalek. And a lot of the data in this particular paper comes from the NASA mission, the Parker Solar Probe. And what they determined from the data from the study is all of these shower, meteorite shower from an asteroid is likely the result of a high-speed collision with another stellar body, or perhaps a gaseous explosion. This would have created all of the fragments that we now see regularly falling down as the Geminids. Now, what's really great about asteroids is that you can use them as a way to peer back through time. They are, as James Cecily points out, time capsules for the formation of our solar system. These asteroids themselves were left over, stuff that maybe didn't make it in the accretion process into a planet, or maybe it is the leftovers from a collision between a larger body. In any case, it's a snapshot in a piece of time. And when you think about it, 
these give you a way, much in the same way that ice cores do, a way to peer back through time through a geological record. Now, when a meteorite stream is normally formed from, say, a comet, you normally see it extending out from its parent body, especially when it's closer to the sun. And this is pretty obvious to look at and, and see this trail coming out of it. When the comet trail gets close to the sun, it gets hotter, you leave behind all the particles and this big tail of gas, and that drags with it pieces of ice and dust, and that trail follows through, gets pulled by the sun's gravitational pull, and then you basically, when the Earth's orbit intersects with this, you get raining showers of meteorites. But asteroids like the one studied in this particular paper, 3200, Phaethion, are made of rock and metal. So the sun doesn't really melt it and get it to drift away, like you would expect. What they did see is that when Phaethion flies past the sun, it does some kind of have a temperature-driven activity. It's not normal for asteroids. Now, maybe it was a comet that lost all of its snow, leaving only behind its rocky core. But the Parker Solar Probe data shows that most of Patheon's activity does relate to its temperature. The creation of the Gemini was probably caused by not a comet or a melting away process, but probably something much, much more drastic than that. They used the Parker Space Probe data to actually validate models that they designed using physics-based models of the solar system and inputting all we know about Patheon as an object they modelled a couple of different scenarios. One where perhaps there was a basic scenario where there was some type of asteroid there, chunks of material being released from the asteroid with some kind of slow speed and what would end up happening. Then they used a collision-based model where they basically took something and smashed a massive rock into it around one kilometre per hour and then watched all the pieces fly off and get ejected. And then they also tried modelling it like you would say a comet where its temperature-based flow around the sun would release particles. When they compared their simulated orbits from all the models and the bits that were ejected and flying towards Earth, they were able to validate that against real measurements from the Parker Solar Probe. And the one that best aligns is not so much the basic scenario or perhaps the comet-based one, but rather a really catastrophic collision. Because the only way to produce the amount of particles with the velocities and the rapidity that's seen is really with something that was pretty devastating to that particular asteroid in the first place. And one of the neat things about this mission is it relies on the cool instruments that the Parker Solar Probe has. Now, it's really hard to study dust in space or from Earth, but if you fly a probe through the dust cloud or nearby, you can get a pretty close look directly at dusty clouds of grain shed from passing comets and asteroids. Now, you can't measure the dust particles directly, but you can track the dust grains in a clever way by looking at the all kinds of impacts in the high-velocity images as they pass through plasma clouds. You get weird electric signals potential picked up by a bunch of sensors in the probe that can measure the electromagnetic disturbance as it passes through the dust cloud. It's a really indirect way, but a clever way of measuring the dust around it, rather than trying to literally look for a speck of dust in space. Now, this is the data that they used to validate this collision-based model. The only way to eject enough dust from the asteroid would really be some kind of catastrophic collision. Now, this goes to show that what can be a beautiful event here on Earth, with pretty low risk and damage to us, actually probably has some pretty nasty origins in space. A kind of mirror to the talk we're talking about with the aurora, which are beautiful down here on Earth, but deadly up there. It's sort of the other way around in this case. 
In any event, space weather is pretty fascinating and very complicated to study and analyse. This particular paper published in the Planetary Science Journal with authors Kukia and Sazali shows just how we can measure and understand it based on new resources up in space studying tiny clouds of dust, helping us understand how our solar system was formed and what creates beautiful meteorite showers. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Della wind creating aurora in our atmosphere and the periodic beautiful showers of the Geminids. All of these different effects of space weather need to be better understood and modelled so we can predict when they might occur. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.